So you can uh, remember that and go and look at the bookshop. Next up, we're going to welcome to the stage Nikesh Shukla. He's the author of the critically acclaimed novel Meat Space, the Costa shortlisted novel Coconut Unlimited, and the award-winning novella The Time Machine. He wrote the short film Two Dozers and the Channel 4 sitcom Kabadasses. Please welcome to the stage Nikesh Shukla. Hi. Hi! How's everyone doing? Cool. Excellent. Brilliant. I'm just, um, I'm just doing what they call vamping while I find my page in the novel. Um, my name's Nikesh. I've come all the way from Bristol to come and read to you tonight from... It wasn't that big a deal. I just got on a train and it took me here. And I used to live around the corner, so like I do understand how London works. I'm from London. Um, so I'm going to read to you... This is my, the last reading I'm going to do from my novel Meat Space, um, which came out last year. And I've done so many readings from it that I'm really excited about um, moving on to new projects. But... Oh, this is such a bad way of selling it to you, isn't it? <laughs> Hey, hey, how about we just start again? I'm going to read from Meat Space. Um, I'm going to read from the start of the novel. So all you need to know is that I have asserted my moral right to be identified as the author of this work and that the ISBN number is 9780007565061. Cool. Okay. So I'm going to read from it now. It feels it feels like the microphone is really loud. Is it too loud? No. Okay, cool. Okay, starting meat space now. Okay. The first and last thing I do every day is see what strangers are saying about me. I pull the laptop closer from the other side of the, med the bed and I press refresh on my inboxes. I have a Google Calendar alert that tells me I have no events scheduled today. An assortment of Twitter and Facebook notifications alerting me to seven new followers a favourite of a tweet thanking someone for liking my book, an invite to an event I'll never go to, spam from Play and Guardian Jobs. Hayley Bancroft has sent me a direct message about an event we're both doing. Amazon recommends the book I, uh, I buy the book I wrote. So what happens is, if you're an, uh, one of those authors who obsessively checks their sales ranking, ranking on Amazon, at some point it will email you and say, hey, why don't you buy this book? At which point you'll, go, you'll get an alert for a book that you've already written. There's a rejection email from an agency I'd applied to do some freelance marketing copy for. I didn't want the book, I didn't want the job, but now I haven't got it, I feel annoyed and hurt. I think about tweeting, we'll write copy for food, but I decide against it. There's an email from my dad. He doesn't usually send me to emails, he prefers text messages. It's a forwarded message from a woman on a dating website. In it, she's written, would love to meet your son and be his new mummy. In bold at the top, dad has written, kitab son, when you free, question mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. I ignore it. I never want to meet anyone's girlfriends ever. The only other two messages from actual humans are a friend request from the one other person with my name on Facebook, which is an important plot point, by the way, guys which I ignore, also an important plot point. When I see the next one is from Rach, an email letting people know her new address. 
I wonder why she's wanted me to have this information. Am I supposed to think, oh, she's moved out of her parents' house, which even being in Zone 6 and involved interacting with her racist brother and the cat that hated me, it was still preferable to living here with me. Or more realistically, am I supposed to think, why is she moving out of her parents' house now, six months after dumping me? Six months after moving out, six months after she told me she couldn't bear my the way I lived any longer, and I was draining her enthusiasm for life. Is that what I'm supposed to think? She's moving to North London, where she lived when we first met. I used to like meeting her at her flat. It overlooked a park and had a big kitchen, and I would sit in it while she made coffee with the landlord's Gaggio filter coffee machine. I mentioned the brand name Gaggio just because they're really expensive, and I, whenever I do readings, I really hope that the marketing manager from Gaggio is in the, in the audience, and he, they will go, hey, do you want a free coffee machine? So I'm just going to leave like a second now for them to make themselves known. Yes, he's in tonight. Amazing. I've done a hundred of these readings and he's never been in. You're in tonight. Um, she was clinical in collecting all of her stuff when it ended. The only trace of her was a t-shirt of mine she took ownership of while we were together, but I got full custody of in the breakup and the chutney she left in the fridge. I noticed that every time I opened the fridge, I hate chutney. It's a painfully white condiment, a colonial response to the spicy Indian pickle. I keep meaning to throw all the jars away. When she first moved out, I spent a drunken night spooning onion chutney into my mouth because that was the closest I could get to what she tasted like. The related Google ad to her email is for housewarming gift ideas. I click out of my emails and think of things to tweet. I've got nothing to say, so I look at the account of this other kitab. I've known about his, ex his, his existence for a while now. Around six months ago, his Facebook profile showed up in my self-googling. I was surprised at first. Another kitab with my obscure name, another one, another me. He kind of looked like me as well. He had fair brown or what I call caramel skin. And the hair hairstyle I had in the 80s swept up into a Patrick Swayze cow look of quiff and oil. And he had eyes like mine as well, almond-shaped and coloured, and he had my mouth full kissable lips. This is how I would describe myself on an internet dating profile. Caramel skin, quiff black hair, almond-coloured eyes, and big kissable lips. I, d I tweet, feet hurt. Too much bogling last night. Hashtag bogling related injuries. This is a lie. I was in bed by 10. I had four beers on an empty stomach. I felt pissed and irritated. I shouted a lot in our front room about Rach and how I was better off without her. And I was put to bed by Aziz, who complained I was too drunk to take out on the town to find him trouble. He'd sighed. I was never up for, I was never up for getting in trouble now I was single. I clear my throat. It feels like I've been singing too much. I sleep with my quilt rolled and bunched into the sausage of a human body. She's my bedtime girlfriend now I'm newly single. I call her Quiltina. <laughs> Thank you very much. That was from Meat Space. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nikesh. Next up, Shazia Qureshi is a Pakistani-born Canadian poet, playwright, and translator who lives in Brixton. Her poems have been featured in the Financial Times, Plowshares, Modern Poetry and Translation, Poetry Review, and Ten. New British Poets, and she has performed her work at the Royal Festival Hall, 
Albra Poetry Festival, Lebri Festival, and Keats House. The Art of Scratching, which is for sale at the back, like a lot of the books, was published by Blood Axe Books in May 2015. Please welcome to the stage, Shazia Qureshi. You may have heard of me. My father was a bear. He carried me through forest, sky, and over frozen sea. At night, I lay along his back, wrapped in fur and heat. And while I slept, he ran, never stopping to rest, never letting me fall. He showed me how to be careful as stone, sharp as thorn, and quick as weather. When he hunted alone, he'd leave me somewhere safe, high up a tree or deep within a cave. And then a day went on. He didn't come. I looked and looked for him. The seasons changed and changed again. Sleep became my friend. It even brought my father back. The dark was like his fur. The sea's breathing echoed his breathing. I left home behind, an empty skin. Alone, I walked taller, balanced better. And so I came to the gates of this city, tall black gates with teeth. And so you find me, keeping my mouth small, hiding pointed teeth and telling stories concealing their truth as I conceal the thick black fur on my back. I seem to have come on with my beer. <laughs> oh, <laughs> there's more. <laughs> At six months. My daughter doesn't like people she doesn't know, especially if they're men, especially if they're dark. This is embarrassing considering my family, the color of our skin. My brother comes to see her. She takes one look at him and cries until I take her off to bed. It must be colic, I say, thinking of his three boys, their kisses like bubbles bursting on my cheeks, their little arms necklacing my neck, what I wanted for him. It makes me sad my daughter doesn't see my brother is the kindest man. He loves God, makes omelets, silly jokes. Later, after he goes, I find his camera on the table, its one eye closed. Um, so I'm reading from my new collection, which came out in May uh, from Blood Axe. And the title, The Art of Scratching, uh, comes from a poem which references the Kama Sutra that my um, nine-year-old son, when he saw it for the first time, he said, oh, is it about me? Um, because he's got eczema and he's always scratching. <laughs> so I, I can't remember what I said about courtesans, but it's something, not the truth. <laughs> um, so I'm going to read now, I'm going to finish with three poems from a long poem sequence called The Courtesan's Reply. And it's inspired by um, a Sanskrit text uh, written around 300 BC uh, about courtesans in India. So each of the poems is in the voice of a different courtesan. Ramadasi. Return to me, beloved, and take me on your lap. 
undo my braid, stiff as buffalo horn, and draw your fingers through my hair. Untie my belt, open the silk cloth covering my waist. Let my oiled limbs, my perfumed skin, envelop you as the rose swallows the bee. Vanarajika speaks of the eight varieties of nail marks. Using the nail on my middle finger, I mark his neck with a half moon on the place I like best to kiss, a sign of my devotion. On his lower belly, I leave a circle. Often I trace a short straight line on his chest, his belly, his back, the dash. Lightly he touches my cheek, giving me goose flesh, then marks me with his thumb, deepening the scratch with the other fingers, a knife stroke. On my buttocks, a mark resembling a lotus leaf. The peacock's claw is for me alone. The hairs jump even more. The tiger's claw he traces under my breast binds me to him. Ratasena to Chandragupta. So this is a, a courtesan who is older and I imagine that her lover is the king and at the time that this was written, uh, the king was Chandragupta Maurya. While you sleep, I take your white shirt from the unpainted chair, smooth it with my hands, the way I smooth the tiredness from your body, pressing myself against you. Let me take your worries, your secrets, those sharp, small stones you carry with you always. I know you have women half my age. I see them in the street, swaying like long grass, their saris concealing slim legs that wrapped around your waist. Are you my king or the boy I met at the well so many summers past? I watch you sleeping. My small bed cradles you, my only child, my only man. Thank you. Thank you, Shazia. Uh, next, we welcome Richard Skinner who's the author of three novels published by Faber and Faber, three books of non-fiction, and two poetry collections. His most recent books are a poetry pamphlet, Terrace, Smokestack, and a collection of essays, reviews, and interviews, Vaid Mecham, Zero. His work has been nominated for prizes and is published in seven languages. Please welcome to the stage, Richard Skinner. Um, good evening, everyone. Um, I'm going to be reading from the second of two short novels that are published together in this um, novel, The Mirror, uh, for which the paperback, which came out last month, I believe is on sale at the back there for a discounted price. Um, 
And The Velvet Gentleman is written in the voice of Eric Satie, the French composer, who um, I'm sure most of you will know, but if you don't, he's the composer of a very famous um, piano song called the Gymnopédie. Um, so this is from day two, uh, and um, yeah, it goes like this. Anyone will tell you that I am not a musician. They are right. I am, or was, a composer of music. There is a difference. A musician is a know-all, whereas a composer of music is a humble servant. My work is pure phonometrics. In fact, it gives me more pleasure to measure the sound than to create one. With my phonometer in hand, I work with joy and with assurance. On the phono scales, a commonal garden F-sharp gives a reading of 93 kilograms. There are sounds everywhere waiting to be weighed, but a sound's weight depends on the medium through which it is transmitted. For instance, water has the greater sound efficiency of any medium, and sounds are therefore heavier in it. An ocean is really nothing more than a simple space filled with water. The fish, along with every submarine and diver, bore holes through this space, or rather, this body of water. If the water didn't immediately close up behind them, an enormous tangle of empty tubes would go through it. The sea would be made of holes, would hardly be there at all. Then there is the sky. I imagine the atmosphere as a body of air that fills space. Sounds are either a dent or a hole in that space. If it's a dent that's bashed into this body of air, it's going to burst at some point. If sounds make holes in space, they pierce the air, and their weight is easier to measure. Also, they make way for other sounds. The earth is the worst conductor of sounds, but it too is full of holes dug by little moles. My modern day experiment was to reduce music so that it aspires to the point of zero, complete silence, an inevitable failure, but a noble one, for although sounds become fainter and fainter with age and therefore become lighter and lighter, they never disappear. One day, I envisage an instrument so sensitive at measuring the weight of sounds that we will be able to hear the remains of Christ's sermon on the mount or Pontius Pilate's troubled mutterings in his sleep. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much, Richard. Okay. Inventor of monsters, hugger of bears, shameless prevaricator, that's fiction writer, Tom Pollock may be spotted on a dance floor above a blur that is believed to be his legs, although no evidence has been found to confirm this. Tom once unwittingly blinded a US government satellite with a gleam from his head on a summer's day. He's still working his way out from under that one. 
He writes YA fantasy about strange creatures and unlikely friendships in the hidden corners of the city, and he lives in London. Please welcome to the stage, Tom Pollock. Evening all. Um, you all all right? Yeah. Excellent. So, uh, after that wonderful intro, I'm not actually going to be reading fantasy for you. Um, I'm not being rude. I'm not checking Twitter. Uh, I am going to read from you from the book that I finished last week. Uh, and therefore, just reading like fresh from a new manuscript uh, that no one else has ever heard from before. Um, it's a spy novel about a teen math prodigy with a panic disorder whose twin sister disappears, leaving a trail of bodies behind her, and he has to find out what's going on. Uh, and his, when we join the, uh, the action right now, his mother has just found him uh, in the larder with a mouthful of porcelain fragments from the salt shaker he's just taken a bite out of. And this is him explaining to her how he got there. Um, the following reading may contain overacting that some listeners may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. It was a tactical error, really, a screw-up. I saw the attack coming a mile off. I should have been more prepared. It was 3.29 in the morning, and I was still awake. My eyes felt like pebbles in my skull, and the ceiling seemed to flex and warp like a cream-painted ocean as I stared at it. Big day coming up, I thought. A big day that was due to start in four hours and 31 minutes. So it would have been a spectacular idea to close my eyes and get some sleep. Except I couldn't, because I knew I had, it had to get up in four hours and 31 minutes, and that was freaking me out. Big day coming up, Petey. Huge, massive day, and so very, very public. One false move will ruin it, not just for you, but for the whole family, so you really, really ought to get some shut-eye. I stared at the ceiling. I stared at the clock. Four hours and 29 minutes. Conditions were perfect. Peter, this is Mission Control. We are at DEFCON 1, all green lights. You are go, repeat, go, to have a screaming shit fit. It started like it always does, the hollow ache in my stomach that I used to mistake for hunger but that no food would ever satisfy. Three hours and 15 minutes, three hours and 14 minutes and 33 seconds, 32 seconds, 31. That was 11,670 seconds. I wouldn't be ready. I couldn't be. Not by then. Feel that. You feel sick. You can feel that stretching nausea in your stomach, and if you close your eyes, it'll only get worse. You'll be a zombie tomorrow, and you need to be at your best, because if you're not, if you're even a millimeter off your game, you'll have an attack then. Not here at home where Mum and Belle can cover for you, but out there in the world where people can see. And then there'll be people with their phones out filming, and then it'll be on YouTube, your blood in the digital water. It'll drift and disseminate everywhere, the stain of it, and everyone will see and judge and know. I hesitate. Mum's pen hovers over a notebook. Usual physical symptoms, she inquires. Tight chest, I confirm, ticking them off with my fingers. Racing pulse, dizziness, hands. Damp as Lance Armstrong's jockstrap. I can do without the colorful similes, Peter, sorry. I close my eyes, remembering. So, I tried the lines of defense, just like we talked about. One, get moving. I scrambled out of bed and fled for the stairs. Motion is good. Blood in the veins, blood in the muscles. It forces breath when breath is hard to come by. I sucked in air, raggedly. Two. Get talking. I was a pressure cooker and my mouth was a release valve. Through, the, through gritted teeth, I led a frantic stream of gibberish whirling out of my head, through my head out into the world. Sometimes hearing the bullshit I'm thinking aloud is enough to persuade me it isn't true. My panicked hissing echoed off the walls on the staircase. You're going to have the biggest, most epic public meltdown in history. It'll go viral. Fuck viral. It'll go pandemic. They'll film kids reacting to kids reacting to watching you. You get hundreds of millions of hits. 
You'll change the lexicon. Meltdown will vanish from the dictionary and be replaced by PT, by doing a PT. The next time a cheaply constructed uranium power station gets swept up in a tidal wave and the zirconium rods crack and radi radiation floods out to blight the surrounding city with cancerous death, the nuclear PT will be on every front page of every news site on the internet! Okay, that sounded a little ridiculous. I start to feel calmer. You will literally shit yourself in public. That, on the other hand, sounded horribly plausible. I ran into the kitchen but had nowhere to go, so I pushed myself up on the corner of the kitchen countertop like the world's clumsiest ballerina, span and faced the room. There had to be something I could use to get a grip. Shelves crammed with open cereal and pasta boxes, pine-faced cupboards, the big silver fridge with my hazy, monstrous reflection, the clock's burning green digits, 3.59 a.m. 10,801 seconds. Three, get counting. Distract yourself. Break up the attack into little countable pieces, little chunks of temporal driftwood. Count on just, count, concentrate on just keeping your head above water until you make it to the next one. One, I said. Two, but my real, out loud voice just sounded weak and tinny next to the implacable momentum of the countdown inside my head. 10,790 seconds. Three, four, I managed, but it wasn't helping. A separate part of my brain had taken up the count and was getting on with it while the panic, my panic uh, continued, unimpeded and undistracted. I needed something else, something more difficult to drag my attention off the hot, churning sensation in my lower abdomen. And that, I tell mum, is where I really screwed up. Oh? I switched from counting whole numbers to counting their square roots. She gives me a long stare. How many decimals? She asks eventually. Six? She winces. Yeah. 2.282427, I stumbled. Syllables like marbles in my mouth, sweat clammy in my hands and between my shoulders and behind my knees. I tried again, 3.316. It was no good. I'd run out of numbers. I looked around me in desperation for something, anything else, to fill the roaring whirlpool of nothing inside me. My eyes prickled, my heart heaved in my chest. I hadn't switched on the light, and in the dim wash of the streetlight through the window, the kitchen seemed to be shrinking, the walls contorting, falling in towards one another. I could hear the beams creaking. Sometimes, when I'm really tired and it gets really bad, I see things that aren't there, hear things that don't happen. Shit, how have this gotten so far away from me? I swallowed hard and reached my last gasp in case of emergency break glass sanity preservation technique. Four. Get eating. I threw myself at the fridge and yacked out a Tupperware of last night's curry. The sticky brown mess was freezing to the touch as I dug my fingers in and started shoveling. I chewed frantically, a hopeless rearguard action, knowing that I couldn't feed the hole in me fast enough, but hoping that somehow the sheer weight of the food I was swallowing would be enough to push the panic rising up out of my stomach back down again. And it just sort of escalated from there. Mum frowns and scribbles. Okay, she says neutrally. You ran out of numbers and you ate. Not ideal, but in the moment you do what you have to. I accept that, but still, she nods at the half assault cellar still on my fist. That doesn't seem like a prime candidate for comfort eating. Keeping, my, keeping her eyes on mine, she eases it out of my grip and replaces it with her own hand. Her fingers squeeze my hand, and she pushes the door of the, the larder open, and together we emerge from my hiding place. My stomach tightens. All of a sudden, I remember, and I feel sick. The kitchen looks like a football crowd rioted in it. Cupboards flap open, drawers lie wrenched from their fittings overturned on the floor, cartons and boxes and pickles smeared jars, bags and rinds and stalks and bottles and cellophane and fragments of dried pasta lie everywhere, flowers scattered like a half-hearted English snowfall. 
The bread bin sits upturned on the table, casting a monolithic shadow under the hanging lamp. I run out of numbers, I murmur, a little shell-shocked, because I don't even remember doing a lot of this. And then, the shame, which has been licking its way up through me like a flame-taking paper, finally takes hold. I ran out of food. Thanks. Thanks very much, Tom. Uh, just to remind you once again, in aid of the Brixton Soup Kitchen, Christmas is coming, there'll be a lot of people on the street, please participate in the raffle if you can. Um, there's lots of books to be won. If you love books, we might win loads of books. And, and we're going to have some music now, musical interlude. Introduce myself then. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm SA. <laughs> um, um, I'm going to play a few songs for you. I know it's like weird because it's a book jam. I'm gonna, yeah, a couple of songs actually. I was invited actually, Courage or Mike Bar. Okay, the first song I'm going to play is um, uh, la, la, la. It's called uh, Silver Spoon. It's about homelessness.
this is my last song that's called Fairy Tale. It's getting kind of warm up here. Nobody told you that this country ain't free. That pigs don't fly and money don't grow on trees. But I would rather believe in a fairy tale. I fell asleep and slept a hundred years. I let go.
can find me on Facebook under the ESE Music Experience. Thank you. Okay, I'm sure you'll agree that was brilliant, yeah? We're going to take a 10-minute break and we'll be right back with some more readings for you.